0: Statistics can be seen and interpreted in, in many different ways. I think, it, I think people's voices should be heard. I think the, and, and we take, if you like, our remit as being representative of the voices of people who maybe wouldn't have another forum. I think Citizens' Assembly is an excellent forum, depending on how it's used. If you go back to the Fleming case, there is no need for a referendum on this issue.
1: This is Here's How, Ireland's political, social and current affairs podcast, presented by William Campbell.
2: Thank you for downloading episode 165 for the 7th of September 2023. Some people have said some nice things about my level of political insight, thanks to them, even if I don't really think that it's that impressive most of the time. Actually, whatever level of insight that I do have, I think it's just down to two habits – one is, when you're discussing any topic, to clearly define what the actual problem that you're trying to solve is. And the second one is, if you think of or hear of a solution, you consider, if it's implemented, what happens next, or then what? Basically, try to anticipate the second next step, as well as the next one. Debates on politics and social issues often take the form of saying X is a problem, we should do Y to solve it. What some people maybe miss out on is if you solve problem X, or if you take action Y, if that happens, what will happen as a result of that? I suppose the average person isn't really required to think out their position on the West Lothian question or the Congress of Vienna, But there are some topics that are very common in popular discussion, debated from bar stools and office microwaves up and down the country, where people don't seem to do that, which is fair enough. But sometimes it seems that our politicians, our journalists, the people who are actually paid to do this, their debate isn't of a much better quality. I was thinking of this when I was listening to Marco Halloran on the Mario Rosenstock podcast a while back. I mentioned this interview a couple of podcasts ago. It's worth hearing what he had to say.
1: But you wrote this tweet <clears> and it's like... What? So my tweet was, I'm never going to own property. I've, I've come to the, to the, to the realisation that I will never own property. What that means for my future is unknown. I at the moment I own a, I, I own I, I rent a, a small one bedroomed cottage in Rialto. It's about two thousand euros a month. I pay my own way. Always have haven't received welfare payments since I don't know the early nineties, and so I am paying a rent that would probably pay a mortgage on a house like that. But I'm not allowed into the mortgage market, and that means every year for the next. However long I live, I will have 4% added onto my my commercial rent. I will basically never be able to retire or take it easy. I will never be able to afford to be sick. I will never be able to afford to lose my marbles because I will have nothing. I will be thrown out out onto the street. And I said in my tweet, er, in my article, I said, I'm one of those people who is doomed to live amongst other people's furniture. The type of person who, at the age of 51, has to ask permission to own a cat. That's
2: not the greatest tragedy that comes out of the housing crisis, but only because there are much bigger tragedies out there. It does, though, I think, bring home to people who don't have to think of those difficulties what it's like if you do, how the other half lives. A little bit later, Mario Rosenstock interjects, saying that people like Mark should be given more credit, literally and figuratively, by the banks.
1: Does it not strike these people who you are seeking a mortgage from that, oh yes, you are an actor, but for example, to be an actor requires such supreme dedication because the, what the, the actual thing demands. Have you ever seen people on stage? Now, it's
2: not the job of either Mark O'Halloran or Mario Rosenstock to be experts in macroeconomic policy, but what they're saying links in with a theme that can be seen often in social media and sometimes from professional journalists and elected politicians. Basically saying that someone is being denied a mortgage for what seems like an unfair reason and that the banks should be forced to give them the loan if they, for example, have shown that they're able to pay in rent an equivalent amount to the repayment or saying that the government should give this or that group a tax break to allow them to buy a house, or a grant to take account of the fact that they can't get help from wealthy parents or whatever. These might seem like good ideas for the individual. They could potentially allow an individual to buy a house, but they just don't work at society level. If you pass a law that says the bank has to give a mortgage to Mary Murphy of 21 High Street, that might suit her, but you can't make laws like that. Laws apply to everyone, or at least everyone in a particular position. And if you make a law that says that the bank has to give everyone, or even everyone in a particular class of person, a mortgage, that doesn't change the number of houses available. All that would do is allow some people who are after a house to outbid other people who are after a house. It might change who gets those houses. It might, but it mightn't, because the original people might be able to outbid them back. The thing that is certain not to change is that there would be an equal number of people who need a house but don't get it. And the one thing that would be certain to change is that whoever ends up with the house would be paying more for it. It's pretty simple supply and demand. More buyers and more money in the market chasing the same number of houses means prices go up. Well, you'd think that it's pretty simple, but the government has sunk almost a quarter of a billion euro into the help-to-buy scheme, 240 million euro. To help them to get a deposit together, the scheme basically gives up to €30,000 of taxpayers' cash to each first-time buyer for free. Except it doesn't, because the developers, the builders, know that it gives up to €30,000 of taxpayers' cash to each first-time buyer, so they put their prices up to match. So that scheme gives 30,000 euro of taxpayers' cash for each first time buyer for free to the developers. Actually, it's not that bad. It's worse, much worse. Because with that extra 30 grand of a deposit, it means that home buyers can leverage it to get considerably bigger mortgages. So the developers are able to jack up their prices by far more than 30 grand. So, not only is the taxpayer stiffed for 30 grand for every transaction, the home buyers end up having to repay a bigger mortgage plus interest for decades, and the developers make hugely inflated profits. It's not that complicated, really, but for some reason, so many of our politicians are dedicated to keeping this scheme, which is currently set to run to the end of 2024. Housing Minister Darrell O'Brien has said he wants it extended for another two years. Purely by coincidence, Darrell O'Brien is the Fianna Fáil TD for the same constituency and holds the same ministry as his predecessor, Ray Burke, who was famously up to his neck in planning corruption and was eventually jailed, not for taking bribes, but for failing to pay tax on the bribes he had taken. Another issue that I think is a bit similar in that people don't think about it very carefully, is traffic congestion. And urban planners even have a sarcastic name for the proposed solution. They call it just one more lane, meaning that if just one more lane was added to the traffic flow in the street, just one more bypass was built, just one more motorway, then that would solve congestion. But it never does. In fact, cities with more car space inevitably suffer from more congestion. The reason that people come up with this idea, despite all the evidence that it doesn't work, is that they aren't defining the problem, and they aren't thinking of what would happen next. A bypass or another lane might solve the immediate problem for them and a few people around them, But if you do that at a society level and devote more surface area to cars, then everything is further apart, far more people have to drive and drive further and congestion gets worse. But the first step is to define the problem. What is traffic congestion? Maybe a lot of people haven't really given this much thought, but a traffic jam is a queue. People are queuing in their cars. Queues happen in two circumstances. Firstly, when there isn't enough stuff. If there's a famine, you're going to get queues for bread. If there is a very popular musician playing, you're going to get a queue for tickets, because the demand for food or concert tickets or whatever exceeds the supply. The second circumstance where you get a queue is where, even if there is enough supply, the distribution of that supply is constricted, like a bus queue. Even if there are enough seats on the bus for everyone at the bus stop, there still isn't enough space for everyone to get on and pay or beep their card at the same time. So people have to queue to do that. So that's a shortage too, but it's a shortage of access to the thing people want rather than a shortage of the thing itself. A traffic jam is probably both of these sorts of queue. Lots of people want to drive into, say, Dublin City Centre at the same time, and there isn't enough road space for them all to do it. The demand exceeds the supply, and the queues of drivers waiting their turn to use the city centre streets radiate out onto the approach roads to the city. Those traffic jams on the arterial roads are drivers ...waiting for their turn to get into the city to use the road space in the first place. That is why the just one more lane approach always fails. All it does is move the queue. Another lane can get you closer to where you want to be... ...but it can't change the fact that demand exceeds supply. There just isn't enough room for all the cars of all of the drivers who want to be at their destination. That fact is totally immutable, because the reason those drivers want to be at that destination is because it's a place very close to dense economic activity. Car drivers just take up more space than exists. It's like a bread queue in a famine. If it's 100 people long, you could make the queue shorter, By getting people to stand in twos side by side, then most people would be closer to the bakery. The queue would be only 50 people long, but, and this is the point, that doesn't mean that there's any more bread to go around, just like there isn't any more space in the city to drive around because you make the approach road a four-lane motorway instead of a two-lane one. Economists have a name for this, and it doesn't sound good. It comes straight from the idea of a famine. The word they use is rationing. When there isn't enough of something, be it road space or new homes, there has to be a rationing mechanism. Basically, there isn't enough to go around, so there has to be a mechanism to decide who gets some and who doesn't. In a market, that mechanism is pricing. If there's more demand than supply, the price goes up until it is beyond the means of some buyers and it keeps on going up until the number of buyers is the same as the number of whatever it is that's available. And that's what's happening with housing, there isn't enough. So the prices keep going up until enough people are excluded from the market to make the number of buyers equal to the number of houses on offer. All of the help-to-buy schemes don't change the number of buyers, they don't change the number of houses on offer. They just increase the price point at which enough people are forced out of the market to equalize the number of remaining buyers and the number of houses on offer. But with roads, with congestion, with traffic jams, there is no pricing mechanism. There isn't anyone putting up the cost that you have to pay to drive into the city centre. But there is still a rationing mechanism. It's basically how long you're willing to sit in traffic. The longer you're willing to sit in your car going nowhere, the more likely you are to get some of that valuable city centre road space. Now, that's not a fixed amount... If more people come along willing to sit in traffic for longer, then you will have to match their bid, so to speak, or give up trying to drive there. These two problems have totally different solutions, by the way. The solution to the housing crisis is to build. Build the right sort of houses with the right amenities in the right places. There is one way to achieve that. Scrap every subsidy to the building industry and shift the tax burden away from work and onto property instead so that people don't see a house as a miracle wealth-creating machine but as a place to live, and tax the bejesus out of undeveloped, zoned land so that speculators would get poorer, not richer, by refusing to develop it. When there are enough houses, you don't need to use price as a rationing mechanism. For traffic congestion, you can't fix that by building, not because it's difficult, because it's impossible. Every city that has tried it has failed, and it's for a fairly simple reason. The more land space you devote to cars, the less there is for everything else. So they have to be further apart, all the amenities, all the homes, all the businesses. So more people have to drive, and drive further to get to them. So the more space you need for cars. So Everything else needs to be further apart again, so you need to drive even further, and so on. In this case, the solution is a pricing mechanism. You've got to pay a bus fare to take the bus into town, and you'd have to pay a car fare to take the car into town. And the price of that fare would be set at a level that allowed enough cars, delivery trucks, whatever, to pay that fare without bringing the city to a standstill. That might be good value for delivery drivers and tradespeople. The cost could be more than offset by the extra efficiency they'd be able to do far more jobs in a day. Other people might think that the price is worth paying just to be able to drive around freely, but all those fees would create a big pot of money that could be used to massively expand and improve the public transport system so everyone could still get where they're going. And it's at this point... That the people who otherwise are hardline Austrian economists, small government fundamentalists who want to bring the free market into every aspect of life, make education and healthcare into private businesses for fee-paying customers, they suddenly turn into bearded socialists flying the red flag, singing the Internationale and saying, no, 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 the right to drive on the crowded streets of our cities should be provided by the government to hell with the expense the taxpayer will pay and the traffic jams will be distributed equally among the masses. In a moment we'll have the interview. But first I want to say thanks to all of the patrons on Patreon. I really appreciate everyone who donates. It pays for things like web hosting. Kevin and myself basically donate our time for free. It's also a great morale booster when we get a new patron on Patreon. It lets us know that people out there are listening and appreciate the podcast. We make a big effort to cover things that are undercovered in Irish media. You're more than welcome to listen for free. But if you think that you could do the same as the other donors and throw in a euro or three once or twice a month, there's details how to do that on the website and at the end of the show.
1: Do you agree? Do you disagree? Here's how is Ireland's political, social and current affairs podcast.
2: The website of End of Life Ireland says... We're a group of volunteers who advocate for voluntary assisted dying as a valid end-of-life choice. We also want to see the criminal law in Ireland that classifies assisted dying as murder reformed. With legal protection for the vulnerable and robust safeguards in place, compassionate legislation is possible. Jane Lazar is the chair of of End-of-Life Ireland. Uh, Jane, you want the law changed. Why? I,
0: I, I suppose quite simply when you are living with a terminal or Mm -hmm. incurable condition and you find your life is intolerable, be it through, Mm -hmm. if you like, physical pain or mental anguish, I believe that an individual, and we as a group believe, an individual should have the right to say when they have suffered enough and also I think, for the view of a group of Irish doctors supporting MAID, that's medical assistance in dying, they, they too believe that a patient's wishes should be respected. And you have to ask yourself the question, or I ask anybody to ask themselves this question, why would any individual be forced to have a prolonged period of intolerable suffering before death mm-hmm. if it is against their wishes if anybody that is their choice obviously uh, if, if they do not find assisted dying a medically assisted death as something that sits with their own beliefs and values then that that is their view and I believe that they are entitled to it what I do believe is that Every individual should be able to determine for themselves when enough is enough
2: mm-hmm. and do you think that all individuals have the capacity to do that, and what do you do for people who either don't have that capacity or maybe where that capacity is compromised
0: the The, the big concern for everybody not include you know n- not not excluding those who are deemed to be vulnerable mm. um, Every, everybody has that concern, because historically, when you when you when you look at the, the care, it was always the doctor doctor's opinion. Mm-hmm. And now, if I can just actually actually bring you back a little bit further, because it, it the, the, there's a bit of a jigsaw that goes on here, and many will remember the landmark case of Marie Fleming. And Marie had MS. She saw how MS was if you like, taking over her life. But she was absolutely determined that it wouldn't control her death. And she took her case to the High Court and then the Supreme Court, fighting for her constitutional right to die. Now, in the Irish Constitution, which is a very Catholic constitution, you know, when you consider where we've come from as a country, no surprises there. But that is what we're dealing with at the moment. So the ruling of the Supreme Court was that whilst Murray had no constitutional right to die, the Oireachtas could legislate for assisted dying. Ten years on since her her death and the ruling of that that court, the Supreme Court, whether the judges, I think there were seven of them, were unanimous in, in ruling that the Oireachtas could legislate, we can now legislate. As a group of people who have been, I suppose, interested in and following the global uh, movement towards legislation in different countries, what we realised was that until there was um, a department in place and the Assisted Decision Making Capacity Act of 2015 was that, that, that legislation was enacted and that there, were, that, that there was a department set up, which is now the DSS, the Department um, of Support and Service, for, uh, if you like, helping people to make decisions was in place that the Oireachtas, an Oireachtas committee would not uh, feel able to take on this that department is now in place. It's been in place officially since, I believe, late April of this year. And there is a support service now in place to help people with, with making those decisions and people who are at varying stages of capacity. So I don't know if that answers your your your, your question, William.
2: OK, but, I I'll, I want to get into that then uh, just a little bit more, because please. Um, it has been said in, in Ireland that we have perhaps a degree of hypocrisy on this, because, for example, somebody who is an end-stage cancer patient, it's relatively common for them to be given huge and unquestionably fatal doses of morphine. And the explanation of this is that it is a dual purpose, or a twin effect dose, that morphine obviously is a very powerful painkiller that's necessary sometimes with end-stage cancer patients. But it also kills the patient at above a certain dosage. And the I, I think that way that it is stated as a, a you know a twin effect really is a bit of hypocrisy because the doctors who do that are perfectly aware that what that dose that high dose of morphine does is it literally stops the patient from breathing so they will die almost immediately and I don't know that you have used it but it is used by many people to say well this is hypocrisy shouldn't we formalize this but is possible maybe that hypocrisy is useful because of the value of life. If we just say, yeah, there are some circumstances, however extreme there are some circumstances, where we can have the single and deliberate aim of killing someone, that that is a line in society that is quite dangerous to cross.
0: It's, it's, it's a, a very big discussion. And if we look, if if we look at what palliative care aims to provide, and palliative care, th- th- there's no doubt there's not enough of it in Ireland, and it's not accessible to everybody. So it it's it's important I th- I think to draw the distinction between the argument that says before we bring in assisted dying, we must have uniform, uh, national access to, to palliative care. That's a separate issue. And we fully support the need for, for more palliative care. But the role of palliative care is to alleviate the symptoms.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So to ease, if, if, you, if you like, the situation of a patient who may be in unbelievable pain. And pain is one of the things that only... In full consciousness, I believe a, a a patient with whatever condition can quantify. But palliative care, in around four percent of the cases, cannot alleviate all pain. So I I would, in a way, come back to that. There is, and we could talk for hours about the the. Um, impact of what is known as the the doctrine of double effect. it's, 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 It's a very simple and yet complex issue. But the question of assisted dying, I feel, is not just about the alleviation of pain. It's what a patient wants for themselves. And knowing that there is a legal and safe way to end one's life can give extraordinary peace of mind. Mm
1: -hmm. It
0: does. We know it does. And what it does do is when when that option is there, if, if a patient, a person, has met all of the criteria for eligibility where legislation is in place, has gone through a series of assessments, know and that patient knows that this is there as an option for them it can it can improve the quality of life that they have remaining to them and the interesting thing is around a third of people who are deemed eligible who know that that option is there for them do not exert that choice but knowing it is there
2: Where, where is that measure coming from? Sorry the 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 a third of people who who have that choice clearly in Ireland they don't have that choice where where, where no. you're referring to uh,
0: research has been done in different countries where legislation exists uh-huh. so you know we we, we take we take our lead from that research and say the other side of pain and suffering is the peace of mind knowing that it is there as a legal choice for them it has to be said that where even where legislation exists. Mm -hmm. And in many countries, I'll draw on New Zealand, if you like. New Zealand and Victoria in Australia are currently reviewing legislation because in order to get legislation in place, where legislators have been cautious, let's say, understandably, but in order to get legislation over the line, what has happened is that it's been so conservative that they've excluded groups of people, for example, with dementia, because of the fear of um, it being abused. And that's an understandable concern.
2: Uh, and and, and he- clearly, you, well, I mean, it's not just a concern. You know, you promote this as voluntary and a choice by the individual, but that's clearly a choice that is you know beyond the capacity of someone who has dementia
0: exactly and a lot of research is being done a lot of i, I say building on research that has been done in for example whether it's canada uh canada are looking at how an advanced request may be used mm-hmm. uh, it was raised in the last of the five uh public sessions that we've had here, the first five sessions in the Oireachtas were looking at the the constitutional and legal aspects of legislating for assisted dying. And in the last session in the Oireachtas uh, earlier this this week on Tuesday, the issue of the advance directive came up and building on the service that is now available through the dis- through the support service to help people make com- come to decisions how the advanced healthcare directive or advanced request could be considered as part of legislation for assisted dying here okay
2: to, to just so that when you say advanced request that's referring to am i correct that somebody of sound mind could exactly. write, do something that would be akin to writing a will saying that if I am in X, Y or Z position and not uh, having a capacity to make a decision at that time please follow this. But people frequently towards the end of their lives change their will as in yes. their, their literal will and Heraclitus said you know we can't step into the same river twice in that things are changing in life all the time. That may be an improvement, you know, having that advanced directive, but it doesn't eliminate that problem because it is not the same person who is dying as the person who wrote the advanced directive.
0: And you, you're, you're absolutely correct there. Uh, I mean, w- what I would just throw into the mix here, and this is great to be able to have this conversation with you, the, um, the, the department set up for uh, assisting people I mean, let, let let's go back further. The in in the majority of the u- jurisdictions, you have to be above a certain age, which is usually eighteen. You have to have capacity, and this is about what vo- what what is termed voluntariness. Um, I I mean, I just bring it back to a personal choice. Voluntariness is just the words that. Um, the word that is is used F-
2: free it. will essentially. You mean
0: free will? Yeah, that you you you're making this decision um, entirely of your when when you when you're of sound mind, that you're of a certain age, and that you have capacity to do that.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Looking at the language that is used um, by the DSS, the department set up to assist people, again. They're coming at all stages of uh, developing uh, a document, whether it's your advanced healthcare directive, whether it's uh, looking at your power of attorney. Mm-hmm, yeah. It's presuming capacity or presumed capacity. And the other thing that that struck me in the words that are used, and I was, funnily enough, I was only listening to this yesterday. Uh, because it, it, it is about respecting the individual. And it says, giving it, it, it's, it's acknowledging, giving due regard to a person's dignity, their bodily integrity, their privacy and autonomy, and control over their own affairs. And it also takes into account their past and present wishes, okay. beliefs P- pause, pause, and values. pause there,
2: Jane, with the words due regard. That's a, a specific term in law, but it's a very soft term and different people can have a very different idea of how much regard is due and is not. And there is a fallacy called the slippery slope argument, uh, which I don't want to fall into. But no. it <laughs> is notable that, and I think Belgium is the particular case, that euthanasia was legalised there in 2002, so it's more than 20 years ago. Yes. Um, But there have been a series of essentially loosenings of the law and several changes made to that since, including in 2013, which was 10 years ago, allowing uh, euthanasia for children. Yes. uh, And including also... And this has been put into effect, allowing euthanasia of a person who was not terminally ill at all, but was making, I'll use the word choice inclusively here, but making that choice based on mental illness. But in those cases, by definition, they're not in a position to make a free informed choice. And even if that's not included in the suggestion that you're making, you can understand that people would be very reluctant to go the first step on that route, wouldn't they?
0: Well, they would, but um, I, again, I'm loving the way our conversation is going. If, if you look back to where Ireland was, whoever would have thought, if you like, looking back, we would have marriage equality, repeal the eighth, the... Uh, Society is changing all of the time. And what we, and I say we, what uh, government, uh, d- different professions. We, we as a society, you, you mean? We as a society. society been su- there's been such a very slow but steady societal and cultural shift to respecting the individual, mm-hmm. and things that we thought Ireland would never see. Over a period, long, very long period of time, we have seen change happen, and respecting how individuals live.
2: Sure, I I, and- I agree with you. I agree with you largely on that, Jane. That it is possible to characterize that as a, you know, generalized over time shift towards personal freedoms and away from essentially a, at at one point, almost theocratic state being the moral arbiter and making those decisions for people and not allowing people the autonomy to do that. But I think that, that, you know, metaphor of just a smooth liberalisation is not entirely correct, and that's kind of imposing something looking back that was not entirely the case at the time. And there have been missteps in that, and perhaps some people would say, for example, what was called the sexual revolution of the 1960s, there may have been some elements of that which were empowering people and respecting people's autonomy to make their own decisions. There were also aspects of that, though, that we're just tolerating a different type of abuse. And because that different type of abuse could style itself or portray itself as moving away from the old order, that it wasn't sufficiently questioned. So isn't it the case that every step we take has to be Justified on its own merits and without regard to the correctness or otherwise of steps that may or may not be seen to be analogous liberalisations.
0: Yes, i I understand where you're where where you're coming from, and we in in the last few minutes we've raised quite a few things from. I suppose, looking at other countries where they have been more liberal. What I would say is that we have enough access to expertise to be able to make our own legislation. We don't have to do what other countries have done in different degrees. So if you you take, whether it's Belgium and Holland, and people will say, goodness, you know, they're. I mean, what's thrown out in the media often is, goodness, they're killing young children. You know, we, we can't allow that to happen here. Well, of course we won't. Oh, well, that might of have course. been
2: said 20 years ago in Belgium when a relatively restricted euthanasia law was introduced.
0: Exactly. And what I would. And I just want to pick up on the, this whole without going into it because otherwise we will go down a slippery slope. Mm-hmm. The word slippery slope. What I would say is every country who has introduced legislation has either stuck where they are with that legislation that they've got, Mm -hmm. and what happens then is those who are excluded at that point in that country, and please bring me back to what the alternatives are when a country doesn't revisit And in every country that that brings in legislation, they will review what their legislation is after a certain period, how it is working and how it is not. So the other, if you like, words that are being introduced now into the debate on this, not only in Ireland, as I've heard in the recent debates, are incrementalism. So whether you call it slippery slope, whether you call it incrementalism, it is reviewing where a country is at. And what happens is that where, if you like, very, very strict parameters have been introduced. The legislation is revisited because it is excluding certain sect- se- certain uh, categories of people, if you like, including dementia. New Zealand.
2: Okay, well, to, 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 to avoid that, in that case, that you say that, you know, you are correct that in some cases the law has been revisited, notably Belgium, and in those cases mostly liberalised. So, noting that specifically, what would you personally or your organisation support? For example, a, a significant number, I'm reading here, over a dozen life prisoners, so prisoners serving life in prison in Belgium, not based on any illness have been euthanized at their own request. Is that something that you would seek to include?
0: I think that's a very um, difficult question for me to answer. But can, it, okay, can...
2: pa- pause there, Jane, because a lot of people would say, well, it's not a difficult question for me to answer. So there, you obviously have a difference with somebody who would say that. So why do you find it difficult in regards to not being easily able to say that you would not do that?
0: I, d- I don't feel. I would. I would rather read more around it. I don't know the situations of those uh, those prisoners. Mm-hmm. Um, what I I would bring it back to where we are looking out from here as an advocacy group, and myself as an individual. Because yes, whilst I'm chair of End of Life Island, I recognise that within our scope of volunteer led advocacy there will be different limits to which each of each of us would want to go and i bring it back to i suppose where we, where we started and our own ex- individual and collective experience of conditions illnesses terminal and otherwise and also where Marie Fleming was coming from, mm-hmm. and I would just again circle back and not avoiding your question to the issue of dementia. And what's the one of the first things we, you know, I even before I got involved and very uh, interested for a lot of different reasons in this was, you know, I used to say, "Goodness, you know, if ever I lose my marbles." You know it's take me out into a field whatever yeah, you know yeah. this, is, this is what everyone always says if I get this you know don't let me suffer
2: yeah but but yes Jane and I understand that point and I don't want to be so in, in indiscreet as to ask you your age but I would just point out the fact that it would not be unusual for example a teenager to say god no I don't want to be old kill me before I'm thirty and that might be humorously said it might be said with a degree of sincereness but can you understand that the decision made when contemplating a distant future possibility could be entirely different to the decision that we've made when somebody is confronted with that as reality
0: indeed and i it's interesting you raise, raise like a teenager looking at this i and i just want to throw this in because i know a conversation is is to, we're trying to be focused but at the same time This is what conversations do.
2: Sure, yeah, go ahead.
0: And uh, we always say everything begins with a conversation. And it's certainly something I say wherever I go. I was out the other day. I'd had quite a lot of heavy, heavy phone calls. Went out just to decompress. Was sitting in a local cafe. And there had been a press article a personal taking a personal perspective on my on my life in the Irish Indo a few days ago a week or so ago. And the young waitress came up to me and said, Do you mind if I talk to you? Can I just ask you about uh assisted dying? She she
2: was aware of your involvement in this obviously.
0: She somebody had obviously pointed out the the article. Mm-hmm. And you know, she came from a family, her nana To give you an idea, you you mentioned you didn't want to ask me my age. Her nana, who's just retired, was involved in the medical profession, very much somebody who would have been involved in repeal and all of that. And she said, I have a problem. Can I talk to you? And I said, absolutely. Um, Why do people call assisted dying suicide." So there was a pause and I knew you can tell when somebody just wants to talk to you and to be heard. And she said, I have had three friends who have come, and again we're back to language, Mm -hmm. who's who took their lives by suicide, mm-hmm. which is now that now the terminology used. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And she said, voluntary assisted dying is assisted dying is something very different. And I, she said, I I feel quite angry and upset that people who are uh, involved in this debate that is happening in Ireland now are using the words suicide because it's not.
2: Well it may be something of you know have a different character but it's certainly highly analogous especially if you're talking about somebody who is having as you put it assisted dying when they are in no way physically ill but perhaps uh, have been suffering from depression or because they are life prisoners with no prospect of release as has happened in Belgium as I mentioned. It's not an absolute difference it's a in some cases a difference of character, but naturally in some cases the character is not all that different.
0: And coming back to where you, you, I I suppose this question, you you pose this question with uh, prisoners to me. This is where a legal framework with robust safeguards comes in for, if you like, determining the, 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 Situations where the criteria for eligibility, and therefore, if, if you like, the, the, the criteria for eligibility, but also then, and I would imagine that in, in Belgium and in other countries where such situations may arise and be brought into the public awareness, That within that there is psychiatric assessment Mm -hmm. and that would be the same for different cases of assisted dying throughout the world in different jurisdictions where... Uh, I'll pause on
2: that Jane. I understand what you, you, you say of you know having a degree of a vetting process but if your point is and you know if your central thesis is the autonomy of the individual then that at least diminishes the relevance of any psychiatric assessment. If the person is saying, you know, themselves, they're saying in the moment, I want to do this, are you then proposing some people will get approval and some will not? That effectively then removes the autonomy entirely from the individual, doesn't it?
0: In 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 the, if you like, the intellectual debate around it, autonomy, yes. But I think you can only move within what... The legislation of any particular country.
2: Yeah, but we're deciding what that legislation should be. We yes. as a society, and you're you're making a proposal on that. And let me say, given that we have examples of this uh, happening with people who have no physical illness at all, there is then the issue of true consent, or you know whether this is truly the person's wish. And it's not hard to imagine a situation so for example it comes up pretty frequently in the courts and I would imagine there are many more cases that don't come up in the courts whereby some older person because they're older is vulnerable to being quite significantly manipulated to change their will and that's a situation that's pretty common and if for example granny is getting on a bit and isn't you know in in good health for her age, but obviously is getting on a bit and is looking at the potentially having to go into residential nursing home in order to cope with that. And that's perhaps going to be very expensive for the family. But, you know, little Johnny wants to go to university and the course, you know, that he wants to do is very expensive. And you can see how perhaps over time, quite a lot of pressure could be put on someone to say, well, you know, you can make the choice, but if you do that, we won't have the money to do this. There is a huge capacity for abuse there, isn't there?
0: And it's, it, it, it's an argument that comes up very frequently in a discussion. Mm-hmm. And, you know, to say... A, and and every- you
2: could quite, and you know, at the end of a perhaps prolonged process of pressure like that, you could... Quite easily, have an older person stating quite emphatically, "Yes, I want to do this." Couldn't you?
0: But this, but this is this is where the criterion, the eligibility, comes in, and also the very much the, if you like, the family doctor's role in this. They will know the history of a family. They will have followed. If they you might. like, apec. Might. But I, I I understand completely and nobody would want this anything like this to happen.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Those but, cases but it, it be, could happen. And, and it's except, fairly common, you know, that fairly commonly happens with putting subtle pressure over time on people to change their will, for example.
0: There are. And this is where I really, really believe that the whole issue of if you like drawing up your will, the power, enduring power of attorney, your advanced health care directive and do all of these things when we are we are in good health. And a rational mind. And revisit it, but also have the people who you trust, including whether it's your solicitor or a trusted friend. And I'd always encourage anybody to have a trusted friend who is outside of the family who has nothing to gain from your estate whatever your estate may be or not uh, but but to have these documents drawn up whilst whilst you your your mind is clear
2: yeah and and you know a lot of people may do that but no doubt a lot of people would not and should i or any theoretical person Ever feel that not being bumped off with a massive dose of morphine is contingent on me remembering to prepare these documents with uh, sufficient foresight?
0: It's. I think it's a question of doing these documents, and I. I'm guilty of this. I think it was only when I was going through my own separation, the first rule was drawn, or this. The 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 will was revisited only years afterwards. The week before I was going into hospital, you know we 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 yeah. yeah. So that's
2: that's my point exactly. You can say that oh you know preparing such documents and so forth would be likely to mitigate that danger. But should people's lives be put on the line because? as many people, including me and evidently including yourself, put that <laughs> on, on the long finger and may, and you know, no doubt a very large proportion of the population will never get around to it.
0: I don't think you can ever make anybody do, do something that they don't want to do. Yeah, and, exactly. So, it, know, talk-
2: so, so should my, literally my life be on the line because I haven't had the foresight or just the concentration or the, you know, because I just haven't done that?
0: I think it, I think there are very few people who will never sit down and do those documents.
2: No, there's thousands, there's vast numbers of people there's I mean the courts are stacked with relatives fighting over property where a, a will wasn't made or where a will was contradictory or there were two contradictory wills. Lawyers make millions out of this, and that's after somebody has died, and that's a it's only stuff. It's not a person's life a remit
0: if you like a remit that sounds terribly formal but you know we 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 said what well, what is the aim of end of life island our aim is to encourage to foster to encourage conversations about end of life an end of life can be not when you're necessarily older we know how precarious life is how unpredictable it is covid taught us that if nothing else, and this is all part of starting those conversations. I mean, we're seeing throughout the world death cafes being set up. We you know we organise a
2: uh, not not throughout the world. Sorry, in, in a couple of countries,
0: in in a few countries, but there are conversations happening in many many countries about end of life issues,
2: and you know and... formally
0: and informally
2: and would you be in favor of a citizens assembly on this
0: i th- i think you'd be surprised at what a citizens assembly would throw up and this
2: we, we might well be but just deal deal with the issue do you think that that is a, a a good way to arrive at a at least a set of opinions that people could address
0: i i think it it's an excellent forum and i would caveat that with it depends what the brief of the of any such assembly is, how the brief is drawn up, and how it is conducted, and how the uh, the uh, information is then interpreted. I think it's like absolutely anything, depending on the quality of the leadership of any issue, that will determine the outcome and the results. Statistics can be seen and interpreted in, in many different ways. I think, it, I think people's voices should be heard. I think the, and, and we take, if you like, our remit as being representative of the voices of people who maybe wouldn't have another forum. I think a Citizens' Assembly is an excellent forum depending on how it's used. If you go back to the Fleming case, there is no need for a referendum on this issue.
2: Sure, but but we have a Citizens' Assembly on drugs, which also is not predicated on the requirement for a referendum. That's not a... It can cover that as well, but it's not, it's not necessary. But
0: I think it, a Citizens' Assembly would be... would certainly throw up... An awful lot of things. It 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 depends whether the citizens' assembly is on assisted dying or end of life issues, and I think there's a danger that when you widen it out into end of life issues, just as assisted dying is one end of life option, assisted to put it in with end of life issues would uh, conflate. P- have the potential okay, to conflate I understand You don't, you, the you don't want to,
2: to confuse those two, and that's um, no. reasonable perhaps. In your submission to the Justice Committee on the Dying with Dignity Bill, you say the international experience shows that the safeguards work. What international experience are you referring to? And what safeguards for Ac- that matter?
0: Across many different countries. We, we've looked at the, the legislation um, and, and there are, the legislation, say for example in Australia, does differ, mm-hmm. but essentially the the safeguards, the for or the the safeguards, so that for the operation of assisted dying, the oversight uh, systems that are put in place,
2: these do work. Okay. well for, for example, I'm looking at the case of three doctors in Ghent again in Belgium who were tried for and acquitted of murder. The euthanasia law in Belgium basically creating an exception to the murder law says uh, the doctor who performs euthanasia does not commit a crime if he has ensured that a li- you know a specified list of conditions are met. These doctors did not do that. But the acquittal, which comes from a judge in Belgium, so we can know the uh, the reasoning, they give a written judgment, it says that just merely having failed to fulfil the list of requirements doesn't make somebody guilty of murder. That does seem to be a safeguard that has failed, doesn't it?
0: I, I And I, I have to say, I don't have the details of, of that, that particular case, and I'm not a legal person, so I would want to have that information and is
2: essentially, essentially the case turned on them not following the law and the judgment was that merely not following the law didn't make these three doctors guilty of murder it made them only guilty of essentially a procedural infringement but the question is, how would you handle a situation? But just one last question, I want to ask mm. you, and I don't know if you know you're interested in this. I'd comes love, from I'd, I'd love to have the opportunity
0: to look into that. Yeah, um, but you know. Se-
2: N- I, I, I will I will include a link Thank you. Um, to that detail in in the notes for the podcast so so that people can look that up for themselves. But just I, I want to say, and you may or may not, as you choose, specify whether your interest in this comes from you know sort of a personal experience or, or something happening in your own life. But my question essentially is that one can expect that the great majority of people who have a deep interest in this have it because of an, of a personal experience, and that's natural and that's likely to be the case. But hard case makes bad law. And this change of law would also, you know, would obviously affect the whole of the population, including the people who are not negatively affected by the current legal position, but may then, perhaps surprisingly to themselves, be negatively affected by a legal position reformed, as you propose. Those people have rights as well, and a Small risks to a very large number of people can justify an inconvenience, or you know something happening that a very small number of people feel very strongly about. So strength of feeling on this, would you agree, is not a valid measure by of the quality of the argument.
0: If I if I understand your your last point here correctly, you're you're saying that. A small number of people
2: have you know, an intense interest, perhaps for personal reasons, perhaps not. But they are not the only people affected by the law.
0: But that that applies both ways, doesn't it? You see, I I, I don't believe that there's a for or against this. I think that What 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 you're doing is, is um, it. it If I can bring it back actually to the argument that is always put forward, that we should have more palliative care and that should come first before assisted dying.
2: I would agree that's a fallacy as well because it's not an either or situation.
0: Well, exactly. And palliative care and assisted dying in different jurisdictions work well together. People who have availed of both and then choose the small number who would choose an assisted death have been assessed and deemed eligible and both, if you like, the palliative care and assisted dying are working within the framework of, one, the legislation to begin with for access to that those services but also those who are operating in it as professionals have a duty to work within the framework of their own profession and also to provide this the service the services they provide in accordance with the patient's wishes for a for a small minority who would fear that society in general is being put at risk. I think it comes back to the election of politicians to legislate in the best interests of the wider population, looking at the legislation and the practices in the countries throughout the world who have this service
2: in place. Jane Lazar, the chairperson of End of Life Ireland, thank you very much for talking to me. William, thank you. Go to the website for sources and references from the show. And while you're there, you can like the show on Facebook, follow the show on Twitter at Here's How Podcast, and follow End of Life Ireland at end of life, i.e., and get in touch if you want to suggest a guest or a topic for a future show. Thanks again to all of the patrons on Patreon. It covers the cost of keeping the podcast going. And if you could throw in a couple of euro once or twice a month, like the other patrons, please do go and sign up at Patreon.com/slash/Here's How. That link is on the website. Also there, you can find out how to subscribe to the podcast for free on your computer, on your phone, or by email. All that information is at www.hereshow.ie. The Here's How podcast is produced and presented by me, William Campbell. The co-producer is Kevin Wolf. Thank you for listening.